Welcome to Law Technology Now. I'm Ralph Baxter, and I'll be your host for today's episode. This is my sixth episode as co-host of the show. Our guest today is the director of the Legal Design Lab at Stanford University, Margaret Hagen. Over the last six and a half years, since she graduated from the law school at Stanford, Margaret has become the personification of the intersection of law and design. And to me, this really matters because design thinking promises to be the most powerful contributor to enabling our legal and justice system to work better for everyone. So today, we're going to get to know Margaret as a person, share her journey to her unique role in in our legal system, and explore how design concepts have the promise to help the justice system work better. We're recording this episode on the campus of the Stanford University uh, in the library of the law school. But before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. Thanks to Logical, instant discovery software for modern legal teams. Logical offers perfectly predictable pricing at just $250 per matter per month. Create your free account anytime at logical.com LTN. That's logic with a K, C U L L dot com forward slash LTN. Thanks also to Headnote helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and account receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. So I've known Margaret Hagen uh, since 2012 when she was a third year law student and I was on a personal journey myself. I was just leaving uh, Oric at that time uh, and examining uh, how I would uh, spend the next chapter of my adventure. Uh, and I, I met Margaret Hagen, and I must say I've never met anybody quite like her uh, when we met here at the Stanford Law School. Margaret, w- welcome to Law Technology Now. Thanks, Ralph. I'm so happy to be here. So as I said, we'd like the, uh, the listeners to get the feel for you as a person. And so maybe we can start with your early life. I know you, uh, you were raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Could you share with us some thoughts about your your early life and and maybe experiences that were formative? Sure. I grew up in a big Catholic family in a really wonderful community in the south suburbs of Pittsburgh. I had a great childhood, very happy, lots of lawyers around, and a commitment to service. I think that was one of the big things that was uh, part of my education and my family life was a thought about public service, social service, kind of doing good in the world. <laughs> so. Um, also, a lot of lawyers. My father is a very happy estates and trusts lawyer and many uncles and aunts um, who are also lawyers. So I knew that was definitely a career path. Um, you know, I, I loved to write as a kid. I was very verbal. Um, I loved math too, though. Uh, but like many women, as I went into high school, I got really into writing and arguing in politics and thought I would end up working in the government somehow. Very interesting to hear you say what you just have said. but. It- because, of course, your path between Pittsburgh and law school, Pittsburgh and Palo Alto, was not a, exactly a direct line. Let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about that. So for your undergraduate education, you went off to the University of Chicago. Yes, the life of the mind. I was ready to study very intensely, have a very uh, dorky <laughs> undergraduate experience. Yeah. <laughs> I love to study. I won't admit, I won't, I'm not ashamed of that. Yeah. <laughs> what, what did you major in? Oh, I basically Chicago? made my own major. So it was called comparative literature, but I was really into um, Eastern Europe. It was the time of the war in Yugoslavia, and there were lots of 
Bosnian Serbs and Croatian people coming to the Chicago area. So I was learning those languages. I was learning Hungarian. Somehow I just got really into Eastern European politics. And the University of Chicago has a great languages program um, and lots of connections with communities over there. So I studied abroad. I just went really deep into the politics. And there's kind of that golden age where the thought was the European Union and international community could, you know, bring peace to the world. I remember believing that myself, <laughs> and I still think it has potential, both economically and in terms of of world order. So you really got into this European focus because off you went to the Central European University, yep. right? And and you got a master's there. Yep. What did you focus on there? The degree kind of presciently was nationalism studies, but basically it was with a lot of the people who were involved in the negotiations and work in the former Yugoslavia. So people who were working on the tribunal uh, in The Hague, but also who had been part of the negotiations. So it was, we were in Budapest, but I was taking the train down to Belgrade and Serbia and kind of, I thought I was going to be a diplomat working on these kind of frontline minority rights and other kind of uh, political conflicts. So it was great to be there, be in the heart of it. Uh, I learned so much. Yeah. I'm sure you did, especially as you say, being on the ground. And then from there, uh, you went off to Belfast to the Queen's University and got a PhD. Yep. I was lucky enough to win a scholarship to study in the UK. And Belfast, uh, especially then when I came in 2003, was another kind of golden age of post-conflict. And they have wonderful communities around conflict resolution, clearly in Northern Ireland. Even though the peace is not perfect there, they figured a lot of things out. So it's kind of a hub of all the ethnic conflicts around the world coming together to study how to resolve conflicts. So it's a, it's a fascinating foundation for what you went on to do in life uh, and, and, and in your career so far. Um, but you made quite a sharp turn yes. from that immersion uh, in uh, Europe and politics, international relations, to here in Palo Alto at the Stanford Law School. What brought you to the Stanford Law School? Well, I swear it seemed logical at the time. Honestly, I thought I was going to end up in the State Department during those early days of the 2010s. There was a lot of techno-optimism, thinking that with technology, we'll be able to track human rights violations, hold governments to account, use all of these wonderful new Silicon Valley progress, new innovations to do government better. And in Hillary Clinton's time as Secretary of State, she had an innovation lab in the basement of the State Department working on exactly this. And that's where I was really excited. After my PhD, I realized I don't want to be a traditional diplomat. I don't want to be just writing academic articles about things. I want to be active. I want to be helping, a kind of commitment to service. I was also really excited about technology, partly because when I was doing my PhD, I was hacked by the Chinese government. I was studying a minority group called the Uyghurs who are in the mm -hmm. far west of China. Right. And uh, just seeing how governments were using technology to surveil uh, human rights activists, I got really interested in this topic of tech and human rights. So I was so excited to come to Stanford and um, use the law school experience to go deep on law and policy, find the bridge to technology, and then go to Washington and actually be a part of some kind of new type of diplomacy. Um, that didn't happen. <laughs> right. But that's a grand plan. Yeah, and, it's a and, grand plan. And, and, yeah. and if you wanted to get, if you wanted to learn about the intersection of law and technology, you certainly came to the right place exactly. here. And, and then, uh, as life does the future unfolded right in front of yep. you in a different way. So before we get into, I want to get into design, of course, and uh, the design lab, a couple of other things I want our listeners to know about you. You have a blog called Open Law 
lab. Just give us an overview of, of what that is and what it's and why you have it. Sure. I started it off when I was still a law student trying to find the connections between law, technology, design, and a focus on access to justice and legal innovations. So it's the things that I'm seeing and hearing at conferences and classes. It's a lot of my sketches of what's happening at these kind of really forefront discussions, as well as some amount of profiles of new, interesting law tech design projects going on. So as I'm scouting and have lots of interesting conversations, I try to document it all on the blog. And so for our listeners, it really does curate the experiences Margaret is having, having, and she has them all over the place, in a way that is very appealing, very approachable, and, and it's well worth taking a look at. So too, is your, uh, what you call your online book prototype, uh, Law by Design. Tell us a quick uh, sure. overview of that. So I, I do have a plans to make a proper book uh, with a good um, publication uh, press. But in the meantime, I wanted to just get out my thoughts and how I teach my students, how I run my own projects. So I put it online free. And also it's a way for me to get feedback and figure out what works and what doesn't uh, for my audience. So it's Law by Design. It covers a lot of the process that we use here, as well as some of the kind of ways of working, ways of thinking, um, the approaches that we take trying to solve problems in our lab. Right. And this, this, for our listeners, this is a wonderful resource. Both of these are wonderful resources. When you ask yourself, as I'm about to ask Margaret, what is design and how does it work in the context of law? A lot of uh, outlines of answers are present in the book prototype. Now, one of the things the listeners will see if they go to either your blog post or the book is uh, they'll, get, they'll get an introduction to your visuals. You are very visual. I think it's kind of part of your trademark now. Would you, would you talk a little bit about how and why you use cartoons and drawings as part of the way you do your work? Well, part of it's to make it interesting to me as well, that the act of drawing and sketching makes me pay more attention to the conferences, the presentations, everything I'm hearing. I get less distracted and I process the information better. So it started as a strategy in law school, which honestly was very boring in the first quarter and overwhelming. So it was just like a pay attention Margaret strategy. Who ever thought that? <laughs> so, I mean, making things human, I think that's been one of the main kind of growth areas or ways I've tried to make work and studies more interesting is just putting humans back into it. And drawing is a really great way that you're focused on the actual people and the substance of what's being talked about, not the high abstract um, stuff that gets that you get when you're writing big paragraphs of text. So I'd love to sketch just to understand what is being said. And also it just makes people pay more attention if I tweet a picture than if I tweet a word or a link to a blog post or something. Right. There's, there's no question. And we, we need, whatever we do in life, we need to make it more interesting sometimes than we are oriented to do mm-hmm. because we're so caught up in the substance. But human beings also learn through different media. Yep. They do. And so reading is appropriate and an important part of it. Listening is too, but seeing, seeing visuals is an important dimension that we often overlook. Now, if you don't have any talent, for example, like <laughs> me, then you can't do that, but you can. Okay, now let's get to the, to the heart of what you're doing today. And let's start with a fundamental question. What is design, design thinking? What is that? Yep, design at the highest level is a way of solving problems. It's a process to follow that focuses on your users. So before you jump into figuring out new ideas or solutions for the problem you're thinking about, design holds you back and says, who, are, who is your audience? 
what are you trying to do to serve them? What do they care about? What do they need? And as you understand the people, your stakeholders, that should be the main guide for what you're actually building, investing in, et cetera. Design also focuses on a commitment to prototyping and testing. So not just building something, launching it, and hoping for the best, but doing lots of experimentation, gathering data, and using that to figure out, am I really building the right thing, and how can I make this thing better? Okay. And then when that process, just to sort of put it in context, when the process uh, of those first two elements has been completed and you've done what you can with it, then you turn it over to someone, depending on the setting, who will then implement, execute on the ideas you've developed in design thinking. And hopefully with the same commitment to this is about serving people and we're going to be constantly checking, are we still serving people? Yeah. Right. So the first of the concepts, starting with the users, is something law firms always say about themselves, why we're client focused. Uh, You know, I think if you looked at all the websites of all the major law firms in the world, they all say three things, one of which is we are clients first, right? But obviously, the way you mean it, it isn't a simple matter of, well, I know I represent Acme Widget and, and they have litigation, so I know what they need, right? How do you go about knowing in the way that you are describing this? Because it's a, it's a different, more intense exercise in design thinking than just the normal have a client Yes. Right. So there's a few different techniques we use. I think they could be extrapolated to law firms and clients' relationships. One is spending time with the people that you're trying to serve. So in many of our things at the lab here, we're focused on self-represented litigants. So what do we do to understand their needs? We go to the waiting rooms where they're waiting in line to be served at the court, and we ask them, do you use technology? Would you use a new app if we built it? What are the main things you're trying to achieve? What are the things that are worrying you? So it's some of it's understanding interviews, some of it's testing interviews. We follow them through the courts as they're trying to use the service. We ask them their feedback as they're coming out of a traffic court hearing with a judge in, in downtown Oakland. And we ask, how did that go? What could have been better? If you had this thing, would it have helped you? But we're constantly trying to get their input so that we, in our bubble, in our lab, are not making a lot of assumptions about what services they need, what tech they need, how they understand information. And how they're experiencing it, which is is mission critical. When you're dealing with someone who's not accustomed to dealing with the law, you must do this. They're they're in in foreign territory from their point of view. And and so uh, they're not ready, they're not trained, they're not experienced to tell you the answers to these questions. But even with the most sophisticated client, Uh, I think if you're in a design phase, if you're trying to do what design is trying to accomplish, you need to ask those kinds of questions. How did this work for you? Are we meeting your needs? That sort of thing. Now, the premise of design thinking, as you describe it, is an, an intention, a motivation to do something better, right? And of course, that Motivation occurs when something is just going terribly, right? And it's being, uh, as in our justice system today, Mm -hmm. right? But it's also applicable, is it not, in situations in which we're doing fine, but we could do better. Yes, completely. In our lab, we think about wicked problems. Like for us, the eviction system is a wicked problem. There's a lot of dysfunctions and lives being ruined. But there's also ways to use design in a lighter way to just make services work more efficiently, to make people's experiences better, um, where it doesn't have to be, you know, destruction and horrible outcomes, but the same strategies can be adapted. Right. Okay. So 
And then in this phase, the prototype phase, this is when part of what you do is ask the, well, what if? Exactly. Right? And there's an idea here that I appreciate you talking about. You have to, in that phase, suspend your normal pragmatism, right? Would you talk about that? Yes. And I think this is really tough. I mean, even for our law students, let alone lawyers who have been um, steeped in a certain professional identity, being very critical and very rational, where it's saying, if we didn't have professional regulations or budgetary constraints or other kind of historical baggage, what could we be doing differently? If lawyers were more like technologists, if lawyers were more like how um, uh, MBAs are, like how do we think in other people's uh, ways of solving problems so that we are not always so narrowly defined about what the solution has to be? Right. So we fundamentally, in, in a way that you're describing, this process imagines a better future. Is that, is that an overstatement? Yes. No, I think we're definitely trying to challenge ourselves to think the legal system can be better, both on the corporate side and on the access to justice side. What does that better future look like? What's actually feasible in the near term and what can we be doing right now? So when you see photographs of people engaged in, in design, design thinking, and then there's a room and there's all these people eagerly working and they've got post-its everywhere. This is phase two, right? Yeah. This, right? Brainstorming, getting all those ideas out, trying to get as wide as possible. All right. Now, one more question about uh, design. Just in a general way, because we're going to turn now next to this to the design lab. How does this, and I guess we've already started to talk about it, but how does design apply to law? And what I what I'm, want to ask you about is, is it just a matter of process or are there more dimensions? So I would say it's more than process, though. That's really the heart of it. What I'm seeing, especially in kind of more corporate law firms, is an adaptation of certain parts of design. So some are using visual design a lot more, whether it's in their presentations, how they communicate, rather than writing five-page memos to clients, making more visual maps of arguments, of strategies, of timelines, or doing entire kind of design sessions around trial strategies, where they get what looks like a design lab, lots of whiteboards, lots of visuals, but they are making the entire narrative of their case and trying out different arguments. So that instead of communicating via words or around a boardroom table, they're active, they are prototyping their whole strategy together. So that's really exciting. It's taking some of the design process and taking it for this very kind of concrete legal application. Yeah. And then right. there's the access to justice side, which is also very active right. these which days. We, which we will come to. But th this is a very important idea. Not enough people understand the power of design to improve the way law works to begin with. And when they do, they often think it's simply a matter of process design, which it is, as you say, but it's more than that. It has application to pretty much everything a lawyer does from client relationship building to presenting in court, leading change in the law firm and, and everything else. I wanted to focus on this because as I said at the beginning, I think that design is the essential building block for making tomorrow better in law. So before we turn to uh, the design lab here at Stanford, I wanna take a break and thank uh, our sponsors uh, once again. Hey law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an 
industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Ten years ago, e-discovery meant lawyers packed into a basement, fumbling with complex, slow software, wondering where their lives had gone wrong. Today, much of that frustration remains, but fortunately, there's logical. Not e-discovery, but instant discovery. Logical's intuitive cloud-based software makes document search and review easy, fast, and affordable. It's time to get out of the basement. Create a free account instantly any time of day at logical.com forward slash LTN. That's logic with a K. C-U-L-L dot com forward slash LTN. All right, we are back with Margaret Hagen at Stanford University. So let's turn now, Margaret, to talking about the Stanford Design Lab. So the genesis of this uh, involved you from the very beginning. Can you talk about how it began? Sure. I was a third-year law student here at Stanford, and I was taking two classes, among others, at the same time. One was ethics class with Deborah Rohde, who is one of the pioneers of the access to justice movement and concept of it, and it was a big focus of the ethics class. At the same time, I was taking a class on legal tech and informatics taught by Ron Dolan uh, and the Codex group here. And that was just a cavalcade of people doing amazing new projects in legal tech as of 2012. And I was thinking, why can't I combine these two worlds of, I mean, that was very inspiring in Deborah Rohde's class of all the things happening right in our backyard here in California in Santa Clara County all the kind of problems with the civil justice system, which was really made clear for the first time in law school in that class. Uh, And then all of this new power and efficiency and innovation that Ron's class was talking about. And so I was writing papers in both of those classes saying, why can't we harness all of this technology power for the access to justice crisis here in California and beyond? And that kind of opened a lot of doors. <laughs> Who knew that writing some term papers, but really just trying to stake out that everything that's happening on the other side of campus around technology and design and entrepreneurship, trying to find some really practical ways to bring that here uh, into the law school. And so at the outset, you formed something of a joint venture between the design school and the law school? Exactly. So along with Ron, um, the design school is a great facility here at Stanford. It's one of the first kind of pioneer homes of design thinking. And it's very much about finding these wicked challenges, hard social problems in different areas. Um, So they were very happy to think about building a partnership with the law school, which traditionally was not very open to design or uh, d-school methods. So we started out just trying out a few classes, like with Fidelity, um, thinking about estate planning apps, using a design process where we interviewed 50 people who hadn't made an estate plan to try to figure out what are some new interventions we could do that would get you to do your estate plan. And those classes then were very successful uh, and kind of proved that the design process was great for students and we could get partnerships. And then that led to the creation of a proper lab. So a decision by the university to create the design lab. And is that organizationally 
part of the law school, the design school, both? Or So it's much easier to live inside the law school because we're really focused on legal problems and our partners are often legal partners. We teach most of our classes at the design school and uh, use a lot of their resources and networks as well. So your story is unique, but it, it is interesting that it involves your exposure to people like Deborah Rohde and Ron Dolan, which is kind of an only at Stanford uh, opportunity. Uh, Deborah being a great leader, uh, academic leader, and so focused and interested in questions of ethics and professionalism and access to justice. There's few people like her in the country. And then Ron Dolan, uh, who was, was at Stanford for a few years, who had been one of the first 50 at Google, a PhD in computer science, and, and then wants to aim his what he's learned in technology at law and, and is well on his way to a career with that now at Harvard. So, and there you are, third year student, and that's who, yep. right, okay. All right, so Stanford creates the design lab as part of, uh, part of the law school. What, what is the mission of the design lab? It's really to harness the power of design and technology to define what this better legal system might be. So that means teaching classes that can explore through partnerships. Every one of our classes has a partner, whether it's a public interest or a private one, to figure out what are some of the main problems that they are trying to solve and what are some of these kind of new solutions, this better future that we can imagine with them. And then we also do a lot of research. So we run experiments, um, we host conferences, and we bring um, really interesting groups of stakeholders together to try to actually build some of these ambitious new projects and see, do they work? Um, how do we measure them? How do we launch them even wider? And so teaching and the teaching part of it, the classes are quite small, right? Yep. Like 10 people? Somewhere between 10 and 20 students enrolled. And, yep. and they're diverse. Yep. And, and I, I mean by that, they're diverse in what they're studying. Exactly. So how, what percentage of them come from the law school? I would say on average, about 50% of our students are law students, including LLMs. And then the remainder are a mixture of CS, public policy, business, sometimes even medicine, and general humanities, social science. So which is a direction that I think law needs to, uh, to go in to diversify the, the human uh, complement of the organizations to bring together these different perspectives. Why do you do this in, at the design school? Why are you uh, uh, constituting classes with law students and students from other disciplines? Well, most basically it's neutral territory. So even if the class is listed as a law school class, oftentimes people are intimidated. They think law school classes are very intense, um, that they're not going to perform well in them if they don't have all of that 1L training, which is somewhat true. <laughs> right. So it's a flag if it's listed over there that it is open to everyone um, and that you won't be at a disadvantage if you are not you know, a JD or LLM. Also, just the space matters a lot in terms of building teams, creativity, um, and having kind of activating the students so that they are not on their computer, that they are working well on teams together. Uh, and the space of the D school is really set up for that kind of team building. Okay. Now let's let's talk. We're we're not we don't have much time left. Let's talk a little bit about projects at the D school. Share with us some of the ones that are most worthy of talking about. Yeah. So definitely we have two big ones that are our focus over the next few years. One is on the eviction system where we're building a network um, of city leadership. So mayors, not in the legal system, who are interested in piloting new innovations around the eviction crisis. So we're teaching a class where we're collecting data and trying to profile some of the most promising new pilots 
And then we're connecting with a network of about eight city mayor's offices to then figure out what we can pilot and study around eviction. So that's very exciting. A mixture of tech and new housing court design. The other one is around better internet. So we're really focused on how we get people who are searching on Google or Reddit or other places online for civil legal problems. First of all, how we connect them with free or affordable legal services, and also how we just catch more people following from Becky Sandifer's study that show many people don't even know they have a legal problem. How we help people even understand the story they're sharing on Reddit actually might have a legal solution and they have options. And, and how are you doing that? I, I, I know about this project uh, a little, um, and it, it obviously goes at a very fundamental element of this, uh, the absence of access to justice. How are you capturing the data and, and then transforming it to usable, actionable conclusions? So one stream of it, we've been lucky enough to have the support of Pew Charitable Trusts and work with Suffolk Lit Lab, another university lab. There on that stream, we're focused on Reddit, whose subreddit legal advice is very active. The moderators of that subreddit gave us about 75,000 people's stories, which are all under the terms of service, open and redacted. And we are training a machine learning system to be able to read those posts and then spot what legal issue is present. Is there a family law issue present? Housing law? What type of housing law? And that's done through a game called Learned Hands, where we have law students and others teaching the machine learning system basically how to spot legal issues. So that then leads to a labeled data set, which leads to a machine learning natural language processing classifier that can do that automatically. So we're just um, skimming along the surface here of what the design school, uh, the, the design lab can do and what it will do over the years. But these are illustrations of how the power and the resource of, resources of the design lab can be aimed. One other question I want to ask you before we conclude this part, there are some natural inhibitions, impediments uh, to the adoption of design thinking because design thinking is fundamentally creative. It's fundamentally a process that asks you to just forget about the past for a second and think about the future. What are some of the principal impediments? I would say there's two. One is the specter of unauthorized practice of law, where many of our teams that have ambitious new ideas are inhibited to actually try or pilot them for fear of uh, regulation or lawsuits, knowing that others before them have often faced a lot of lawsuits. So this is always the feasibility viability factor that takes people away from more ambitious ideas and towards more conservative, and I would say less powerful ideas, especially in the access to justice realm. The other is about the ownership and structure of law firms. Um, like when we worked with Fidelity, which clearly is not structured as a law firm, they just had a lot more capacity to run experiments or try new things or build these interdisciplinary teams of business people, designers, lawyers, and technologists to come up with new software solutions. And I think just the ownership and the hierarchy structures of law firms often inhibit that kind of experimentation or really collaborative teams where there's true equal footing between lawyers and other types of professionals coming up with solutions. And, and one other idea I've, I've heard you talk about before is the orientation of most people, especially lawyers, to stay focused on their day-to-day -day things they are doing and, and, and have a hard time looking to the future and thinking in a more 
uh, general theoretical way. Yeah, I think it's really hard to be strategic when you have kind of a fire hose and you have to be always on in terms of client services. So we need that other kind of professional that has a little bit more breathing room, but also incentive and structures that support this kind of more strategic and big picture thinking. So one last question, Margaret, how how do you spend your time? It seems like every time I turn around, there you are at a public event here, a public event there. Um, how, how do you divide your time among your responsibilities? So I love project work. I love actually doing design and tech work. So I would spend, spend, uh, like half of my week on actually (sighs) doing projects like learned hands or eviction stuff. 25% of my time is teaching and with students. Uh, and then usually twice a month I go out to events internationally or locally because it's great to stay abreast of everything that's happening and, find new partners. We're really partner and collaboration centric. That really is the only way that we're ever going to get big change here. So that's why we do show up at so many events. Yeah. So to our listeners, uh, I encourage you, if you ever have a chance, if you haven't seen Margaret uh, in action before, if you have a chance to participate in a program uh, that with which, um, in which Margaret is appearing or participating, uh, t- take that chance. Uh, you will not regret it. Margaret, thank you so much uh, for spending time with us today and for letting everyone get to know you better. The word unique is overused all the time. Almost always, it's it's not appropriate. With Margaret Hagen, I think it is. Uh, Margaret's background, as you've heard it, uh, her depth of curiosity and interest in the way the world works in all those different ways that she's exhibited with her studies over the years and the the way she has spent her time uh, is unusual, but it's created a Uh, a perfect foundation for what she's doing here at Stanford. Margaret Hagen is a pioneer. She's doing something different. She's going into uncharted waters in the ways that legal service can be delivered and justice can be realized. And she's an evangelist. One of the things I like the best is is the energy she brings to this. Uh, She, when she appears somewhere, she gets you and everyone else excited about the idea of, of design, of, of imagining a better future, really thinking about understanding what the users, the stakeholders uh, care about, what they need, uh, and so on in a different way. And you, you can't not be moved by Margaret when you meet with her. So thank you, Margaret, so much for being here. And thank all of you for listening in. If you liked what you heard today, you can review us on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, this is Ralph Baxter for Law Technology Now. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.